Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. This morning we're beginning a new series called God in the City to consider what it looks like to partner with God to bring life and transformation to the places where we live and work. As this is the first week in the series, it will be a big picture talk and what will follow over the next few weeks will be a closer look at what all that means in your neighbourhoods and workplaces. But for today, let's start to unpack this theme and consider why the city matters. Perhaps you have a favourite city, or maybe you have a love-hate relationship with this one. London is, of course, an incredible place to live. Its history, its diverse culture, and the opportunities for great art, for great food, and great entertainment, they're endless. But it's also a place of great poverty, a hard place to be, and a place of homelessness and sometimes exploitation. And as with many cities, where some thrive, others find it hard to survive. Ever since the first cities were built, people have thought about what the sort of ideal city would look like, how a city should be organised, and how much we shape the city or whether the city ends up shaping us. In fact, the biblical story could be rewritten as a tale of two cities. But it is Charles Dickens' book by the same name that may be more familiar. His story is set at the end of the 18th century, at the time of the French Revolution. His two cities are Paris and London, but neither are desirable places to live. Both cities come under criticism in different ways for their political, their economic, and their social structures. And the pain that that inflicts on the vulnerable in the hands of those who benefit from it. However, in Dickens' mind, there is no ideal city, but there is rescue and redemption through sacrifice and suffering, through which lives and circumstances can be changed beyond all measure. At the centre of Dickens' narrative, whilst the systems and structures of either city seem oppressive and unfair, one man defies expectations and gives his life for another by taking his place in prison, exchanging clothes and stepping into the shoes of the condemned man so that he can walk out free. So how might we live in our city in a way that tells a story like that one, despite everything that's going on around us? When our city is difficult and demanding, and our lives can be too, how can we see what God is doing in our city and how might we join in? We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about cities, how the early church responded, and what that means for us today. So, whilst the biblical story begins in a garden, it is the building of a tower at the heart of a city which provides an early note of caution about the ambitions of humanity without God. 
In Genesis 11:4, we read, Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. This is, of course, the story of the Tower of Babel. And it gives us our first biblical hint at a city called Babylon, which will become one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. In the biblical story, this tower represents humanity's attempt to make a name for itself, to climb up to heaven, to become like God's. And it reminds us that whose name you bear matters. As the biblical story unfolds, a call from God to a man called Abraham to leave everything behind becomes a promise to his descendants that of all the people of the earth, they will be God's people. He will make his name known to them and he will dwell amongst them. They will not need to build a tower up to him. He will come down to them. And because of his presence, they will bear his name reflecting his goodness and his glory so that others will come to know him through them. And so the Exodus story of deliverance from slavery in Egypt, of rescue and redemption, will become their defining narrative. And God's mission to reach the whole of humanity and to renew the whole earth would begin by redeeming this one tribe of people in one particular place. Eventually, they come to a land where they will settle and build permanent homes of their own. Until one day, roughly 400 or so years later, a shepherd soldier called David becomes their king. And it's his son Solomon who will build a permanent home for God. A temple in a city, taking the place of a tent in a desert, which will become the place on earth where God will dwell the overlap of heaven and earth, a tiny piece of Eden in the midst of a royal city. This temple was built in about 1000 BC, and you can read all about it in 2 Samuel 6 and 1 Kings 8. This city with the temple at its center was called Jerusalem or Zion, and it became a literal and a metaphorical place of joy and wonder of abundance and peace, of safety and security, of sanctuary, of justice and mercy. It was a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And if you ask the biblical writers what heaven looks like, most of them would describe a city. But in time, this city was conquered and its people were carried off to Babylon. Their temple, the place where God dwelt, was destroyed And instead of joy, their songs were filled with lament and longing. For those in exile, it was their darkest time. Far from their land, far from their city, and with their temple destroyed, life went on, but they were heartbroken. It appeared that God had left them. And Babylon came to represent the archetypal city, a city of darkness and destruction, which the prophet Isaiah spoke of as a symbol of the world and its wickedness, in contrast to a future holy city. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel are some of those who write to and about the exiles during this time. And like Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel ends with a vision of a restored temple, a new city and a renewed creation. 
Instead of an evacuation plan, leaving the earth behind, the Bible describes how God will one day bring renewal to the earth. In particular, in chapter 47, Ezekiel sees a tiny stream pouring out of this temple. It quickly becomes a river that flows through the city and out into the desert, which becomes full of plants and animal life. Much of this imagery comes from the description of the Garden of Eden and reflects God's intention to restore all humanity with his life-giving presence, to dwell amongst his people and to fill the earth with justice and peace. It would be a time when all of the ancient promises of freedom for captives, of healing for the sick, of provision for the poor would surely come true. It would be a new exodus and all of it would be a witness to the nations of this God. And then he came and it was both everything and nothing like they thought it would be. In Mark 1:15, Jesus proclaims, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, turn around, and believe the good news. And he traveled all over the region of Galilee, healing the sick, setting people free from demonic oppression, feeding the hungry, and teaching people from all kinds of backgrounds about the kingdom of God, announcing that something new had begun. And when John the Baptist sent Jesus a message asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are right raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. But Jesus was seen as a troublemaker by many. He was a disruptor. He was a disturber of the peace. And he was crucified as a failed king. And yet, three days later, after the scandal of the cross comes the shock of the resurrection. It seems heaven truly had come to earth. The kingdom of God had broken in. And as we begin to use these phrases interchangeably, the city of God, the kingdom of God, and heaven itself, we are not talking about something in some distant galaxy at some distant time. We are talking about the rule and reign of God, where he is present and active amongst his people, revealed in the person of Jesus by the power of his spirit. But to live as followers of Jesus in the cities of the Roman Empire, as now, is to be confronted daily by a very different kind of story. Where, one, where might and strength prevailed in the Roman Empire and peace was maintained by force, after the resurrection, the first followers of Jesus looked to their scriptures and back to the language of exile to speak about themselves. Though they lived and worked in familiar places, They felt like exiles in their communities, where they had to learn how to be good citizens of the empire on the one hand, and how to retain their people of God, their identity as the people of God on the other. And just as the exiles had asked, they now asked, how on earth are we supposed to do that? 
How are we supposed to live in the midst of what feels like a foreign country, this city, this neighborhood, when our values, our identity and our story is so radically different to those around us? How do we live as citizens in this time and this place when we belong to a different kingdom? Many of the letters of the New Testament address this, how to live as faithful followers of Jesus in difficult and demanding times. That is the backdrop to the early church. And it's the book of Revelation which gives us the sharpest contrast between the cities of this world and the city of our God. Like the prophets before him, John, the writer of Revelation, had a poetic vision of what was going on behind the scenes in his time. It was as though somebody had lifted the veil on an invisible world and shown him unseen places. And in the book of Revelation, he provides us with what one writer calls a terrifying, multi-layered denunciation of the outwardly delightful an inwardly deceitful city, which John calls Babylon when he is very much talking of Rome. John had been imprisoned for his leadership in the early church, and he is all too aware that the cities of his time are part of a violent, corrupt, dehumanizing empire, which had accomplished much, but still considered the tearing apart of men and women as entertainment in its stadiums. We may be thankful not to live in such barbaric times, but John's vision also gives us a sense of the destructive and demonic power at the heart of every city, where men and women are still treated as commodities and sold as slaves. Perhaps it's not so different in our times. In 2021, almost 13,000 individuals were identified as potential victims of modern slavery, and a third of those were in London. And that is just those who were identified. One in 52 Londoners is considered homeless. Many of our institutions have admitted their historic and institutional racism. And many women and girls experience unacceptable levels of violence and abuse that affect their daily lives. London is in fact the fourth wealthiest city in the world with over 250,000 millionaires and 36 billionaires apparently. Whilst, also, whilst almost a quarter of elderly Londoners are now living in poverty which is higher than anywhere else in England. That's one in four. Whilst northeast England has the highest rate of child poverty, many of the worst areas continue to be in London due to high housing costs, where parents have to pay the rent, but they cannot afford to feed their children. If our gospel doesn't speak to this, it's not relevant here. But the good news of the kingdom of God is for every part of life, for every person in this city, 
It is not just about the salvation of our souls. It is about the rescue and redemption of our lives and the transformation of our communities. Something happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that changed everything. And to live as witnesses to that is about living a life that is shaped by a crucified king and a kingdom characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That may sound pathetic in comparison with the statistics that I just gave you, but it is what this city is crying out for. Over the weeks to come, we are going to be looking at what that means for those that we live and work with, how we might become city shapers and culture makers as we seek the welfare of this city with the resources that we have. But if we don't have a clear sense of this radically different story for ourselves, it will not change anything. We will just be people who think we know what it is to be good news whilst pursuing the very same things that are destructive in the lives of those around us. So how are we supposed to live in the midst of all this when our values, our identity and our story are so radically different? How do we live lives of promise so that we really are good news to those around us? If we want to see what God is doing in this city, if we want to be part of what God is doing here, we have to be clear about what God's city looks like and what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. The picture we have in Isaiah, Ezekiel and Revelation is vivid and extraordinary. John writes in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We read elsewhere that this city has walls but no gates. It is a place of sanctuary and safety, but its door is always open. It is a place of light and not darkness, but its light source is the presence of God. It is also a place of ethnic diversity and equality. It is a place of worship, intercession and healing. It is a place that has perfect dimensions, reflecting its wholeness and its holiness. When Jesus came, he brought heaven to earth as a foretaste of that heavenly city. And we, the church, have been commissioned to do the same In the cities of this world, we are to be a signpost to this heavenly city, to the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright writes that the Apostle Paul saw the church as a microcosmos, a little world, not simply as an alternative to the present one, a sort of escapist country cottage for those tired of city life, but as the prototype of what was to come when the whole earth would be filled with his knowledge and glory, with his justice and peace. 
Paul sees each ecclesia as a sign of that future reality, each church a prototype for the kingdom of God. But this is, of course, not easy. This is not for the faint-hearted. We are to be a patient but powerful witness to a different kind of story. We are to be a sign to the powers of this world of the creator's original intention. We are to be present in the city as a promise of God's enduring presence with all people. Did you know that Christians may have worshipped in this city since Roman times? before the first bishop was appointed in 605 AD. There are churches in this city that are hundreds of years old. Our skyline is still dotted with their spires, which used to be the highest point on the horizon, even though they are now dwarfed by the skyscrapers beside them. The first hospitals and schools built in this city were run by the church, where people were fed and clothed and sheltered, and prisoners were visited. In fact, members of Westside Church were visiting prisoners at Wandsworth Prison 100 years ago in the 1920s. Well done, Westside. Many of London's churches have survived the destruction of the monasteries, the Great Fire of London, the Blitz of the Second World War, and the IRA bombings of the 90s. Christians have continued to worship and serve their communities through persecution and famine and plague, and most recently, the coronavirus. Buildings are central to what we do, to being present in a place. But what we do is done by you and me. In Mercy Street, at the hub, in the dance workshop that's happening, in the knife crime community group that's run by Val and Rosie. There are some things that we can only do together when we gather together, when we pool our resources, when we build a community that endures and bears witness to something greater than the sum of its parts. But then we are scattered to be Jesus alone in the places where we live our everyday lives, sometimes praying for miracles, sometimes offering somebody a sandwich. To love one's neighbour is the simplest but hardest thing for us to do. To see them for who they are and not what we've made them out to be. To pray for them even if we don't get a chance to speak to them. To serve them when they may not appreciate it. And to befriend them whether there's anything in it for us or not. This is the work that we need to be doing. And this is what it looks like for me to love my actual neighbours. It looks like an interruption on a busy day from my elderly neighbour, Maureen, who can't open a jar of marmalade by herself anymore. It looks like stopping to listen to the lady who runs the post office because her husband died five years ago. It looks like praying for this young guy that I see all the time who seems so lost and in need of Jesus and I have nothing else to offer him. It looks like serving my local police officers as they work to keep my community safe. And it looks like helping Arthur pick up rubbish in our street. Not because he's paid to, but because he cares what our community looks like. I don't know about you, but it is hard to love my neighbours when they make a mess or they make so much noise that they keep me up at night. It's hard to know what to pray and whether it makes any difference 
It's hard to serve people you don't care about. And it's hard to care about a community that you don't feel is serving you. But all of this is a small part of what it means to partner with God and to see God's kingdom come in our city for people who are crying out for good news. Richard Carter writes this about our city in his book, The City is My Monastery. The city, more than ever, is in need of God's love. This city is God's, just as much as the hills and valleys, perhaps even more so, for it is bursting with those made in God's image, and among the many in poverty in whom we are told Christ is especially present. Now in the crisis our world faces, a crisis of identity and belonging, a crisis where once again people fear the violence in our midst and want to turn inwards and return to a national identity that does not exist. Is it not now more than ever that we must reimagine the kingdom of God, a kingdom truly worth living for? I'm going to invite the band to come back up here at Balham and at Battersea and Westside. Is it not now more than ever that we must reimagine the kingdom of God, a kingdom truly worth living for? There are many competing stories in this city, but are any of them worth living for? In worship, we tell a different kind of story. We quite literally sing a different kind of song. We interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and we choose to reimagine the world as God intended so that we might see him as he really is and see ourselves in right proportion to him and see those around us as God sees us too. But worship is about more than songs, of course. It is about who and what we serve with our time, our energy and our money and what we allow to shape our lives. So who or what will we worship if we want to reflect our God and love our neighbours in this city? Because if we choose to centre our lives around this God and love our neighbours, we will live lives that radically redefine what it means to live in this city, where our allegiance is not to accumulating wealth. It is not to success in the way the world defines it, or as power as we see modelled to us, every day. But it is to practicing rescue and redemption. It is to sacrifice and service so that God's kingdom might be revealed in us by the power of his spirit to continue the work that he began until he comes again. In this place, in Balham, in Battersea, in Westside, and wherever we're listening to this today, in this in-between time, let us be people who are shaped by this ancient story in a way that is powerfully relevant to London today. Can I ask you to stand? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.